I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and this is the Dying to Ask podcast. I have, as maybe you do as well, a bit of a love-hate with the internet and technology. I'll talk about the loves first. Love, the convenience, the innovation, the efficiency. Love, like what I'm doing right now. I'm recording a podcast from home. I just talked to a very cool guest on Zoom who is across the country in New York City. Never could have done that before. That is amazing. I love that I can order groceries from Costco and that they will show up at my house in two hours and I didn't buy an inflatable mattress while walking down an aisle just because it seemed like a good idea at the time. That's incredible. Downside, I hate my attention span and focus being compromised. And for me, there's no doubt that they have been by all the time that I spend online. I hate that it's a go-to filler for me rather than doing nothing at all. Um, I will sit there and scroll, like I bet you do too. I hate that it's so easy to spread bad information on social media. That goes without saying. So today, a kindred spirit is on the show. Her name is Pamela Paul. And Pamela wrote what has become one of my new favorite books, and it came out last year. It's called 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. 100 essays, anywhere from a page to, say, three pages long, on things that we used to do before the internet that we don't really have to do anymore. So things like rushing into your house to the answering machine, which was an actual box out on the countertop, to see the flashing light to see if somebody had left you a message. It was so exciting. Things like waiting a week for your pictures to be developed, only to find out that all your vacation pictures were horrible. They were blurry, or you look terrible. Things like asking the person next to you on the couch, who's that Who's that guy in the show? Like, that, that guy on TV, like, he was in something. What was he in? You used to like debate things like that for an entire evening because you couldn't just look up who that person was on your phone. And whoever came up with the answer was like the master of cultural literacy. <laughs> it was very exciting to be able to be the person who could always name that person. That would be Teo, by the way. He can do that without looking it up. So today we're talking about all of those things um, with Pamela, who has described herself as the intersection of consumer culture and real life. She has worked as the editor of the Times Book Review and oversaw coverage of books of the New York Times, hosted the podcast as well. But she's beginning a new chapter now as a Times opinion columnist, and she has done a bit of that in the past. You have probably, if you have kids, you may have read an article that she wrote, an opinion piece a few years back about the lost art of boredom. It's phenomenal. And actually, that article really is what gave her the idea for this book. She is such a good person to talk to about ideas and figuring out how they really fit into our lives and the context of why we do the things we do. And the answer usually is because of the way we used to do them. She's an author as well. She is the author of a book called My Life with Bob, which is a book based on journals of all the books she's read. She wrote How to Raise a Reader, The Starter Marriage and the Future of Matrimony. She studied history at Brown, and when she graduated from college, she actually bought a one-way ticket to Thailand to find out, could she make it without a job or knowing anyone? Spoiler alert, she could and she did. She is the person when you say, there's an app for that, she's probably going to look at you and say, does there really need to be? And maybe you should think about that too. Great reminder that we all have control over how much tech we let into our lives. I'm this time to ask how Pamela came up with the idea for the book and what her writing process was like. Her big takeaways about our relationship with the internet, the generational takes that she's having on the book, and we'll talk a little bit about her new gig at the New York Times. She is leaving what a lot of people would say is the most influential book job ever for something different 
yet familiar. So we'll talk to her about how she made the decision to take that great leap. Pamela Paul is my guest on Dying to Ask. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and I've been anchoring morning news for more than 20 years. I thought I had seen and covered it all. Then came coronavirus, a pandemic, anchoring in my living room, homeschooling my kids, and all the things that come with COVID, including a vaccine. It was supposed to get us all back on track of living our best Instagrammable lives. Best lives-ish. The reality is we're still untangling what life looks like in a world post-pandemic. A lot of people describe a sense of never-ending overwhelm and anxiety. Is that just what life is like now? Or are there ways we can get back to living in the now? And this season of the Dying Desk podcast is asking how we can hit the restart and start living again. Pamela, thanks so much for joining us on the Dying Desk podcast. I woke up this morning. I was very excited to talk to you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Did you wake up by a phone? Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I wake up by, yes, a very good question. Um, uh, It's an Apple watch on my wrist. This is one bit of technology I do love that buzzes so that I don't wake up my husband at two in the morning, which is good for all involved. Trust me. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So those are some good things to the internet. Um, I have absolutely loved your book and I, I picked it up before the holidays and I brought it on a family trip to Texas. And it was one of those things that we started passing around the table and looking at even just the chapter headings. And for the parents around the table who were all Gen Xers, it was like, oh, I remember that. It was such this like great trip down memory lane. For our teenage children, it was like, like we had landed from another planet. It really was. Yeah, yeah. Like one thing I find um, shocks them is the emergency breakthrough. The emergency breakthrough phone call. I don't know if you remember this, but for of those course. Uh, who maybe weren't around, you know, if, if you got a busy signal for a long time, let's say you were calling one friend and then you tried the person you thought she was on the phone with, and that was busy too. You'd be like, oh my God, they're on the phone. They're talking about me. They're making a plan without me. Something is going on. And so you would do an emergency breakthrough and the operator could actually call and break in. You know, I think to, to people of, um, of my generation, it's sort of like, as old fashioned now as calling Butterfield eight was, you know, in our time, it's just like (laughs) a very foreign notion to kids today that you, that you, that there was even a human operator. Well, so it's, it's funny. We did talk about that at the table, which then led us to the next one, which was something that my family did, which was you would call home from the payphone at the high school um, and make a collect call. And when they said, who's calling, we would say Nolan, which was code for Nolan high school, where I went to high school, which meant we're ready to be picked up now. And oh, then wow. you decline the, yes, I know. Was so to save the, the 75 cents. That was to save the 75 cents. Wow. Yeah. Very clever. Very, yes. My mother was All very thrifty. now useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they really are. Now they just don't answer the phone or the text if you ask them if they're ready. Um, where did the, the idea for the book come from? How did it come about? I mean, I know you've written in the New York Times these, these wonderful pieces and essays over the years that certainly seem to have lent themselves to this kind of a topic. You know, the, the essay that started it all was, it was an op-ed for the Times, um, and it was called, in my mind, it was called The Lost Art of Boredom. Um, the, the headline that actually was published was Let Children Get Bored Again, and it, you know, really struck a chord. And the idea was essentially, we're never bored anymore. Ever, because we all have this thing that we call a phone, but really it's a portable internet. 
And we carry it around and it means that at any given downtime, at any moment where we might otherwise just be letting our brain sort of go into, you know, sort of um, a shutdown mode, um, we can be entertained, informed, diverted. And I am as guilty of doing that as anyone else. So I was walking to the train station, which is like a 12 minute walk to go to work. And I realized that I wasn't using that time and then I had this phone so if you know at a certain point I started texting while walking which of course is very dangerous and yet what I could possibly go wrong what could go wrong and I started <laughs> thinking like I could actually I could listen to music I could listen to a podcast I could catch up on I could actually read the morning newsletter from the New York Times so there's so many things I could be doing with this time what it means though is that I've lost 12 empty minutes and what used to happen during those empty minutes during that light period of mild boredom is I might actually have ideas. Yeah. Um, so when you have a constant flow of input, it's really hard to generate output because you're just constantly reacting to whatever it is that's coming out you instead of generating something new from within. And I think we all, you know, at some level know this when you're in the shower, for example, and you can't be online. Although I have heard that people, a lot of people figured out how to have the internet in the shower, but if you're, if you Stop. haven't gone to that, like, yeah, that, 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 that level, um, when you're in the shower, that's when you have your, your big ideas, right? I'd often run out of the shower, like wanting to write things down that I had thought of because there's nothing to do in the shower. So the title in my head, the lost art of boredom was a deliberate double meaning because you really do come up with, you know, new ideas with creative ideas when you don't have anything else to do. And we've lost that. Yeah. It's almost like we're afraid to have that downtime now. And I think that, you know, our culture is so put such a value on productivity that it's difficult to justify thinking, just thinking right. time sometimes, you know? Right. I mean, it's, we're also thought, you know, we're also taught that we we need to optimize every moment. We need to use our time. Um, and the idea that just letting your mind wander isn't part of that equation. I mean, if anything, what people have been doing is meditating, which of course is a kind of curative for the constant input. But even meditating isn't the same thing as actually just letting your mind roam free. And most of the time meditating is a digital experience now. <laughs> That's right. People, right. I find it a great irony and I do it too. You know, you, you need an app to meditate um, right. and you need a headphones and you need to, you need to be online essentially to feel like you're not online. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's so funny. Um, I loved, you know, everything that you, you brought up, everything from leaving a message on somebody's, you know, recorder to getting a message and that thrill of coming back into the house. And I remember, I remember being single working in Des Moines, Iowa, coming home and seeing that flashing light and you were just full of possibility over who it might be. <laughs> Right. I mean, there was like a shorthand narrative device in a movie to show that someone was a single loser with no friends because they would come home and they would press the button, even though it wasn't blinking, just in hopes. And it would say, you have no messages. And it was like, all right, that's the Bridget Jones moment. <laughs> um, things like, you know, remembering phone numbers is even a lost art for most people. I remember my phone number from growing up, 944-7091. And my best friend was 944-6327. I don't know what my daughter's phone number is. I don't know what my no. son's phone number is. No, they're just buttons. 
748-1414 was the number to the Dallas Times Herald classified. I remember that wow. there was a jingle that went along with it, but it is funny. My husband is the same way. He's a total numbers geek. And he can remember the phone numbers of every one of his best friends being a kid. And most of them, you know, their parents, if they're still alive, still have that phone number, but it is true. You ask him now, what's our son's phone number? It's all in a phone. And, and there was a, there was a real skill to being able to do that. And even having a landline is archaic. I mean, my, yeah. my kids are just like, why? What all you get are marketing, you know, calls and 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 phone calls in Mandarin. Like, why do you even persist in having this? What is this communication thing you do? Why would you That's do right. that? People, interaction, why? Um, what as as the book started getting out and the chapters, you know, people started discussing the chapters, what have been the most common reactions that you've gotten from people? And are they do they follow long generational lines as you think that they probably would? Well, you know, for Gen Xers, it is a lot of nostalgia and like, oh my God, remember when? Um, what's interesting to me is that millennials, as you said, it's kind of a history lesson for them. They, they don't, they didn't live through this time. But what I find fascinating is that there is a kind of nostalgia for it. Um, there is a, a streak of just like in fashion, like the 80s and early 90s, like for reasons that are completely incomprehensible to me, have become cool again because it, it also <laughs> looks bad to my eyes. Um, you know, there is this idea of like, oh, wow, that was really cool that you had to get film developed. And there are apps that actually simulate the experience of having to wait to get photos and not being able to filter them or touch them up. I think that our social lives were a lot simpler. Look, they weren't any less cruel or devious, you know, kids who uh, cyber bully now or who torture one another um, in various online ways. We all found a way to do that in the 80s, as like many John Hughes movies will, will yes. attest. Um, we all knew how to be mean, but it was a little bit simpler. Um, and I think we forget, we forget just how quickly and how much has changed. I was walking out to my car with my daughter when she was uh, 16, she's now almost 17. And, um, and I didn't have the standard key with the you know door opener on it. You know how when you when you get a car, you have that one dealer key that doesn't have the automated beeper thing on it. It's like the loser key, but if all the other ones are misplaced, you have to use that. And so I went and I actually opened up the door with the key and she just was dumbfounded. She said, you can open up a car? <laughs> with a key, like she, it never occurred to her. And now that of course has nothing to do with the internet, but for me, it's a kind of metaphor for the ways in which internet technology have so quickly changed things that some things that are just obvious to people our age are not at all obvious to people who are, you know, anywhere, let's say under the age of 35. Yeah, I have a 16 year old son. I've had some very similar experiences with him. And I've really in the last year had to sit myself back and say, is it possible he doesn't know? What does he not know? And I do that with a lot of people who are younger than me now, because our worlds have changed. Their experience is so different than what you and I grew up with. I'll give you an example. Like um, when I started out in journalism and even 20 years ago, when I started at KCRA, uh, my job as a reporter in the front seat of the Ford Explorer was to navigate the Thomas Guide. And I mentioned Thomas Guide to somebody in the newsroom. They're like, who was Thomas Guide? No, 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 <laughs> not who? He was a what? And he was your best friend. And yeah. I was explaining, you know, J5. And I mean, I was terrible at directions. I was just always praying that we would finally get there. You know? <laughs> but it was so interesting to have this conversation. And it, it really is, it's a very cultural, generational kind of thing. But it, it is interesting to see how we come at things from such a different perspective right now. 
Right. I mean, people don't need to learn how to read maps anymore. It's just like, it's a whole thing that you once used to be really proud of, um, you know, sort of mastering that. It was part of like third grade geography. And so was writing checks. Remember you all, yes. you all have to learn to write checks and you would have a workbook like with dittos and you would write out the checks and remember like, no, 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 you don't put the and here, you put the and here. And I find that teenagers now they're like, what, this is asking for my signature. Like, how do I write a <laughs> Is this legit? You know, what, like, is do I need scam? to write it in cursive? You know, it, it's just, what's cursive? That's right. But what you know, what's also interesting is not just young people; it's people our age too. Like the internet habituates us really quickly. I think that when we are all back in the office someday, um, perhaps even some of us full-time and not hybrid, you have to reacclimate to like all the things that you can't do now that you're not in a Zoom meeting, but you're in a real meeting with human beings. Like you cannot have a side chat going on on Slack while you're, you know, while you're in a room with other people, you need to make eye contact occasionally. You don't need to look into the little circle camera at the time. You actually need to connect with people, you know, eye to eye, but not too much, not so that it yes. seems weird or scary. <laughs> and, and, you know, I really find that I, even in the period of two years have kind of let go of some of those skills. Like you kind of feel like a robot when you're walking into a room. Like, um, what do we do with our hands? <laughs> it's very true. And it is interesting how just even like the interaction of how we interact has changed tremendously. But it is also exciting, I think, how quickly a lot of it comes back. I've noticed even in our newsroom now that we're uh, more people are back in the office and more importantly, now that masks have come off since we're in a fully vaxxed office. The way people interact, collaborate, and come up with ideas and discuss and even have some of these side conversations has radically changed in just a couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, it's part of what I wanted to do with the book was just to remind us of what it was like, because we I think we, too, have kind of forgotten. That was the hardest sort of research in, in, in my job was to think like, sorry, that was the hardest part of the research for the book, which was to think like, OK, let's take the Rolodex, for example. What did we actually do with the Rolodex? And also, like, I almost feel like I got to explain for people what a Rolodex is, because there might is. be some people who really don't know, but it, it basically was like this thing that was on your desk and it had little cards and literally it rolled around and each card had a person's information. So think of your contacts in your phone, but on little like index flip cards and you would just... <laughs> And sometimes yes. if you just couldn't remember who you were trying to talk to, you would keep spinning it till something came up that made sense. That's right. That's right. Or you'd be like, <laughs> who should I call? And you kind of flip your Rolodex around. But the Rolodex was more than that, which is like what I tried to think about. What did that mean? And what it really meant was it was a sign of power. And what power yes. was, you are who you know, right? So you would go into like the big boss's office and he would have three Rolodexes and there were, you know, and there were business cards like stapled in because, you know, he didn't have the time to actually write it out in the cards. No, and it was, was too important. That's too right. Important. That's right. He didn't have time for those things. And you thought like this guy knows everyone. It was like, let me see here. Oh, yes, Mr. President, you know, and um, so it was it was not just a sign of power, but that whole idea that power was you are who you know is gone because we all know everyone, right? We all know everyone. When we 
at the book review, for example, the New York Times book review, where I have worked for the past decade, when we're trying to make an assignment to assign um, a book reviewer to review a book, we have to make sure they don't know the author. Well, that used to be a very simple question. Do you know the author? No, never met him. But now the answer is more complicated. It's like, oh, we follow each other on Twitter, but we've never DM'd. Oh, wait, he liked something that I posted. Like, does that count? Does that mean we know each other? We're Facebook friends, but we're not really friends. We've never met in real life. There's all different kinds kinds of ways to quote unquote know someone. And so that idea is sort of embodied in the in that loss of the of the Rolodex. We've lost the whole idea of what it means to know people. Yeah. And it it seems to me that as you look back at things that we don't normally do anymore or use anymore, what you're really doing is giving the present context to why we do things the way we are. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of it has happened um, willingly, some of it has happened subconsciously. Some of it, when you think about it, has happened sort of against our will. And part of what I wanted to do with this book was to make people realize like, you actually do have a choice with some of these things. Like you don't have to do everything in a kind of, uh, in internet terms. So one example is, um, um, all of the automatic electronic pay systems and apps that people have now, you know, whether it's Venmo or Zelle or whatever else, um, you don't have to do that, right? So you can, for example, go out to dinner with a friend and just say, I'll treat you this time and you treat me the next time. Or you can actually like do the math and split the bill. There are all different kinds of ways of, of doing things that don't have to be on the internet if you choose not to. So I wanted people to remember that a lot of this change that has happened, it's happened um, almost thoughtlessly. And you do have the ability to say, you know what, I'm actually okay with doing this in the pre-internet way. It's interesting. What, um, what things other than say like some of these pay systems, what things have you said no to in your own personal life, if you don't mind sharing technology wise? <laughs> Um, well, recently I've opted out. Uh, recently, I've opted out of a couple of social media platforms, um, which uh, you know I have to say it is a mixed bag. Like there were things I really loved seeing on Facebook uh, that I no longer see. Um, you lose out. I mean, so much of what we consider community now, right? It's not actual physical community. For example, in my town, if you want to do a kind of free cycle, you sort of have to be on Facebook to do that. Right. That's where that, that takes place. So it's, it's a deliberate choice and you do lose certain things, um, but that's something that I've opted out of. Um, another thing that I've made a, a real choice on is not to have digital devices in my bedroom. So I don't sleep with a phone by my bed. I realized like that is actually not good for, no. my, for my sleep. And so I have like a ye old traffic, uh, sorry, travel alarm clock that uses a battery that I occasionally have Love to change. It. Um, yeah. it doesn't automatically update for daylight savings time. Um, but again, it's, it's a choice that I've made that I feel like keeps my life a little bit less grounded, a little bit less up in the cloud. Which tech things do you love? I mean, we're talking on Zoom. I got to be honest. I'm, 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 we're very similar in how we look at a lot of these things. Um, I, for one, have loved the experience of being able to reach out to people like you and not only just hear your voice, but also interact and see. And 
you know, spy on the books in your bookshelf and all that kind of thing. Like I, oh, this yeah. has been one of those like really delicious things to me. Oh yeah. No, look, I'm super nosy. I like, we had a thing that we did at the, at the book review called bookshelf detective, where we would like actually go in and zoom in on people's bookshelves and like, look at what loved it. Had. Loved yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really. So no, there's a lot that I love. I love texting. And some of the things that I love the most, I was very reluctant to uh, take on. So for a long time, I didn't text. I was like, email's just fine. Um, but now I text all the time, especially because I can text on my desktop or my laptop. Yes. So I can type really quickly, um, which type is a word that I realize is like from the before times I can keyboard with speed. Um, <laughs> I, I do love texting. I do love being able to have a conversation behind the conversation. And I have to say, there is something really great about the zoom meeting where you can kind of have a side slack going on at the same time. Um, because you know, in the old days, when you would have a meeting, you would sort of be looking at like one of your colleagues slash friends across the room, like giving each other a look. And then you'd be like, I have to remember afterwards to say this and this and this and this once we yeah. can get alone in the coffee room. But now you can just say it you know, while it's all going on. Of course, there's a really dark side to that too, because if you're the one who happens to be talking, you know that everyone else is doing exactly the same thing to you, having a whole conversation, being like, does she know that there's spinach in her teeth? Like, do you should we say something? <laughs> Um, but I, I do love that. I have to say, you mentioned earlier, you know, working with the book review, you're making a major pivot, pivot, pigeon, pivot. I don't think it has anything to do with pigeons pivot in your life. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I've been at the book review at the New York times for 11 years. Um, I started off part-time as the children's books editor, but I've been the editor of the whole thing for nine years, uh, which is interestingly the same amount of time my predecessor and his predecessor, uh, were the editor, I know it's like some giant egg timer in the sky. Interesting. Um, but I wanted to write again. I, I wrote this book during the pandemic and I wrote this book, um, while I was working before I was, before the pandemic, I was writing it on my commute. So I would write on the train to and from work. Um, I also wrote a children's picture book that came out during the pandemic and I would write on the margins of my life. I decided that I would actually like to write during daylight hours, um, that it would be nice to be like paid to write or to write during my paid time as opposed to during my free time. Um, and then to be able to do things like sleep and have fun and spend, you know, unstructured time with my children and the time that I used to spend. What writing. a novel idea. I know it's very exciting. literally so, and figuratively. <laughs> I've decided not to do two jobs at the same time, really five jobs. If you consider each child a full-time job, which they are. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm going to be a columnist for the opinion section of the New York times starting next month. And you've done, you've obviously been doing a little bit of that over the years. Can you just explain what is involved in that and, and what the frequency is? Cause now you're kind of expected to come up with the winner every time. <laughs> Yeah, no, high little, expectations. <laughs> um, no pressure. Thank you. Um, yeah. I you write once a week, um, and I will be writing about a lot of the things that I wrote about um, while I was doing my full time job. The difference really being that now I can have a strong opinion, whereas before, you know, if I had an opinion, it, it would be about something that, let's say, uh, it, you know, really you know, at the New York Times, we sort of take the division between the newsroom and opinion very seriously. It's very much a church state operation. Mm -hmm. So you never express a political opinion. You never express an opinion on a book, for example, before the book comes out and the critic has weighed in. So now I kind of have the freedom to say what I think and believe in addition to what I'm reporting other people think and believe. So that'll be free. It sounds a little terrifying at the same time. 
Um, you know, honestly, it, it's terrifying in a good way. I love writing. I'm originally a writer. I was a freelance writer for nine years before coming to the Times. Um, so it feels like I'm kind of going back to my roots and I get to stay, you know, at home in my pajamas all day, which, Win. right. It, that's one nice thing to carry over from the pandemic. That's great. Well, I have to ask you, um, because of all the experience you have book wise, what are you reading right now? What are you liking? Um, I am reading, well, I'm reading one book, I'm reading two books at a time, um, very much a standard practice now. It's actually something I picked up during the pandemic. I used to be very strict and was like, no, you must complete one book before starting another. Um, so I am reading a book that is coming out in May called The Latecomer by um, Jean Hanf Korlitz, who wrote a thriller called The Plot uh, last I year. I loved um, it. Yeah. So this is loved a follow-up to that. And then I'm actually reading um, a book that came out in 2005 in the UK and I don't think actually came out here called the state of Africa. And it's a look at um, 50 years of decolonization between 1955 and 2005. Um, it's for me, actually, not only does it sort of fill a gap in my own knowledge, but I have to say, for someone who loves books, there's so much interesting writing coming out of Africa right now and um, coming from immigrants from Africa to the United States or to the UK, that this is a real grounding in a lot of what has happened and sort of where they're coming from. And it's an interesting, you know, it's something that, speaking of Gen X, we didn't really learn in the United States in our social studies classes growing up. So it's a little bit of filling in the holes. Yeah. It was always in those last two chapters of the social studies book that you never quite got to. Right, right. <laughs> I've always thought that that would be a great book is just take the last two chapters from the first eight years of school with all the stuff we left out that we never Right, got, right. It was after like through. the AP exam or the final exam. They just didn't, the exactly. teacher never got to it. The bomb, <laughs> you know, the, the, the bomb fell at, and, uh, and, and Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And then that yeah. was the end of history. And they're like, we'll see in September. Yeah, That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Pamela, thank you so much for your time today. I absolutely adore the book. Um, and it's been just such a great one to have conversations in the car. And I literally have flipped sometimes her chapter. And then I've figured out ways to start conversations with my kids. And some of them have gone down paths I never would have expected, but they've always been great talks. So thank you very much for uh, putting all of that out there and helping us go back down memory lane or just letting people know how we used to live not that long ago. Well, it's really fun talking to someone who knows exactly what I'm talking about. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. If you'd like to keep up with Pamela Paul and what she's writing next, the best way to do that, other than getting a New York Times subscription, is to check out her website. It's PamelaPaul.com. I would refer you to her social media, but I don't know how many will be affected by the time you actually check, because as she is transitioning to this new job, she was telling me that she gave herself the gift of dumping Twitter. I'm like, whoa aggressive. <laughs> she actually did. Her husband questioned her though. He said, uh, you know, you have 80,000 followers and you sell books. Are you sure that's a good idea? And she said, yeah, I do. I think it's a great idea. So she's no longer on Twitter, but you can find her in a lot of other places. And again, her website's a great place. You can go check out her books. And then also she links to her articles in the New York Times. Best of luck, Pamela, in your next venture. If you have a moment and you can take a second to leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast app that you're listening to us right now, that would be amazing. It is the fastest way to grow the Dying to Ask podcast. Can't do it without your help. Thanks for listening this week, and we'll see you next time on Dying to Ask.